a Catholic monk who was wrestling with the tension of his longing to live the glamorous life of a professional luchador and his monastic vows that gathered a group of children in the monastery and wanted to tell them of the beautiful life of the monastic order. He said something like this, listen, I know that the wrestlers get all the fancy ladies, the clothes, the free creams and lotions, but my life is good, really good. I get to wake up every morning at 5 a.m., make soup. It's the best. I love it. I get to lay in bed all by myself, all of my life. It's fantastic. Look, go away. Read some books. Some of you may recognize this as a clip from Nacho Libre. <laughs> but the story is actually loosely based on a Mexican Catholic monk who is torn between competing hungers. The hunger for piety, living this religious life, serving the children, a life of meaningful purpose and value, and the hunger for self-glory. So we look at the Gospel of Mark today. Jesus has something to say, and this passage point to a different type of hunger. When he says, I am the bridegroom, he calls people to hunger for the presence of God. He calls people to a hunger of the very presence of God. The ESV Study Bible describes Christ's words in this way, far from ignoring spiritual disciplines such as fasting, Jesus restores a God-centered and God-dependent dimension of this discipline. So we're going to talk about fasting a lot today. I know that's not the super common thing. But as I use the word fasting, think of this. Think of the word hunger. Fasting has to do with what our true hunger is for. What do we truly hunger for? We all have hungers. It's what drives us. It's what motivates us at work. It's what leads us into relationships. It's what leads us to addictions and healthy habits. We all have hungers. Please turn with me and we'll read out of the Gospel of Mark, chapter 2, verses 18 through 22. There's also going to be the scripture posted up behind me if you'd like to look up there. Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. And people came and said to him, why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast? But your disciples don't fast. And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and they will fast in that day. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, the new from the old, and a worse tear is made. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is destroyed, and so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. Please pray with me. 
Heavenly Father, come and speak to us. What are you telling us through this passage today? Give us clarity, truth. Give me power as I speak. And may we experience the tangible presence of Christ in this sanctuary this morning. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. One of my favorite ways of celebrating in life are weddings. I remember when I was just a young boy, whenever we were getting ready to go to a wedding, I wanted to get a brand new pair of shoes, a slick bottom one, so I could go out and, and enhance my moves. So my mom would take me to Payless and she'd say, buy whichever pair of shoes you want. So I got my pair of shoes and I went out there and danced it up. But there's so much more at weddings even than dancing. There's, it's the right time to toast champagne. It's the right time to eat. It's the right time to party. It's the right time to sing. It's the right time to celebrate. I've been in several weddings, and once I was even asked, uh, known uh, for some of my breakdance moves. I only have two or three of them, so don't be overly impressed. But one of my friends said, after our wedding, will you do the centipede down the, the center aisle? So I did that. Um, the church ended up writing this, this new law in their, in their church rule book, no centipeding at weddings, so... In St. Louis somewhere, people are asking why that was written in there. It's me. <laughs> but what is a wedding? It's a celebration. But it's a celebration of persons. You likely went to that wedding because you knew someone, you had a history with someone, and you wanted to go there to celebrate them. But the reality is this, that we can go to a well at wedding we can dance, we can eat cake, we can drink, we can party, we can do all these great things and never focus on the person who this ceremony actually is celebrating. Spirituality without Jesus at the center is essentially like going to a wedding and forgetting the couple getting married. So that's the problem we're dealing with in this text. We have the tendency to focus our spirituality on things and ceremonies other than the person of God. So think about it. How many times do you leave church and say, I just encountered God? Or maybe some of you are devoted uh, prayer warriors and you get in a prayer closet. How many of you come out of that time of prayer and say, I just sat face to face in the presence of Jesus Christ. He listened to me. He smiled at me. He said, my grace is sufficient for you. So there is a beautiful thing at the center of all of this ceremony, the center of all of this Sunday morning worship and this thing called the church. There is a person, his name is Christ, and he came to earth to rescue and to do life with you. This is my proposition in this sermon. The one thing, if one thing I want you to remember is this. Since Christ brought the new kingdom, the new way of life, the new covenant, we must orient our spirituality around him. We must orient our spirituality around the person of Christ. So what is the center of your spirituality? Maybe take an assessment right now. Why do I go to church? Why do I call myself a Christian? Is there a person at the center of that? 
This text calls you to the person at the center of it. When we get to heaven's gates, God's not going to ask what your role is. How many times did you go to church? How many times did you fast? How many times did you do this? Did you do it? Did you know Jesus? Did you know that his grace is sufficient for you? Do you know that you're welcome in here regardless of all your sins because the person of Christ died on the cross and said, put it on me. I want him here. I want her here. There's three points in this sermon. There are three questions, the questions about fasting. First question is this, what is fasting? Second question, who fasts? Third question, when do we fast and how do we fast? So what is fasting? It's a unique phenomenon, isn't it? It's, it's a practice that's existed for thousands of years. No one knows exactly when it started, but it's celebrated. It's used by people from all different types of religions. Gandhi was known for using it, fasting as a political tool. And he got the ear of some powerful people through fasting. Intermittent fasting is also a popular fad today. In the biblical context, however, fasting carries a different meaning. It's not a way of asserting one's own will, but a way of opening oneself up to the very presence of God. God's presence is given to us in Christ Jesus, but fasting is like clearing the table. We're just going to sit down and do a face-to-face. So how many of you are excited about this? Who wants to go on a one-week fast today? Let's start today. Father's Day, meals, we'll just save those for keep the steaks in the refrigerator. Seven days of fasting, water only. Okay, all right, I guess. No, because we're a foodie culture. I already have my plans. My wife said, where do, you go? where do you want to go eat? I like AZ Wilderness. Give me a, a peanut butter and jalapeno jelly burger. If you haven't tried it, don't laugh, okay? Because we're a foodie culture. We like our comforts, and comforts are all around us. And if you're, if, if you're on a budget, it's okay. There's options. As a matter of fact, Costco's down the street, and you can get a hot dog about this big and an unlimited cola for $1.50. You can get unlimited soda pop for 59 cents. You can get a churro the size of a baseball bat for a dollar. <laughs> and you can get a bucket of frozen yogurt for $1.50. So we are comfort seekers, and our culture offers it to us on a conveyor belt. Here's comfort. Here's more comfort. Here's more comfort. Gratify the longings that you have. And food is a wonderful thing. Don't get me wrong. We are not here to demonize food today. It is a gift from God. But how often are we going to this food for comfort as our primary source of comfort? Our primary source. John Piper wrote a wonderful book on fasting, and it's called A Hunger for God. I commend it to you all. I read that in preparation for this, and this is one of the things he says about it. God's greatest adversaries are his gifts. So his food is a good thing. The greatest enemy of hunger for God is not poison, but apple pie. It's not the banquet of the wicked that doles the appetite for heaven, but the endless nibbling at the table of the world. It's not the X-rated video, but the primetime dribble 
of triviality that we drink in every night. So in this, we see that fasting is this powerful tool to counteract what's given to us day in and day out. Free ticket to comfort. A free ticket to gratification. Biblical fasting is more like this, as one author puts it, a declaration that we would rather feast at God's table in the kingdom of heaven than feed on the finest delicacies of the world. We have an opportunity to feast in fasting, to truly feast. Enjoy your food. Buy great food. Go to Whole Foods. Go to Sprouts and stock your refrigerator up. But don't let that be your only source of comfort in feasting. You notice that God has built us in such a way that we have to keep on eating. But fasting reminds us that there's something more. In short, we're just talking about hungering for the presence of God. That's what this whole message is about today. Hungering for the presence of God. Fasting. I'm going to take a break. I could have that right now. But I'm going to take a break because I want to lean into my hunger for the presence of God. I can remember when I was dating my wife, we had this very... Um, fast-paced dating and engagement. I think we dated like three months and got engaged, uh, had a one-month engagement. So it wasn't a lot of dating, but we had this dating, and it felt like too long for me still because the desire and the love and the affection was so strong. And I, I remember some of our first dates, we went to Panera. And I remember getting there at Panera, and I look up at the board, and I'm just like, I really don't care. Bacon, turkey, bravos just aren't that impressive to me right now because I wanted to spend time with Emily. Panera was just an excuse to get some time with her. I remember when we actually broke the plane that we, we ate, that we went on this long trip and we came back and we finally broke that plane. We were able to feast together as well and it was a, a quick trip to Popeye's Chicken and we were sitting on my old couch in my little house smashing some Popeye's and I'm like, this is the one right here. That girl had grease on her hands and her mouth, and I was like, yes. So, <laughs> so feasting is good, but fasting gives us this unique opportunity to lean in and feast on God's presence. There's something more. There's a person in the midst of our spirituality. Have you ever noticed that the things that you hunger for tend to disappoint Ever eaten a whole sleeve of Ritz crackers? It's like in the car, like, I'm just going to fill up on this. And you get home and someone has a great meal. It's, but it's not always bad things that we, that we are disappointed by. We often have legitimate and good hungers also that, that disappoint. Maybe what you're longing for this morning is a great relationship with your father. You hunger for this good and this legitimate thing, but it leaves you with disappointment. There's no phone calls coming in. There's no intentional time of sitting down and training and teaching. There's no I love you. There's no time. 
In fasting, we allow our hunger to go to a place that won't disappoint. God's love is faithful. He is a father that never leaves, that never forsakes. His ear is open and it's bent down in Christ Jesus. Remember the woman at the well, she had multiple, multiple partners. And Jesus sat down and smiled. I could just imagine him sitting with her. I have water for you that you will drink and you'll never thirst again. I know you're just looking. You're, you're looking, you're longing for someone that's faithful, something that's good. Orient your hunger towards me, the living water. Second question is who fasts? In this text, we see at least three groups of fasting people. But in general, I see each of these people are a devoted people. Devoted people fast. I'm going to forsake this initial desire for this greater desire. And I follow Rock on Instagram, I confess. And one of the things I follow him for is because he's such a devoted man. His Instagram is so inspiring. The way he works out, the way he's focused, the way he's on mission, he has a true sense of purpose and calling, it seems like. He's lifting his heavy weights. He has these massive chains around his neck. He's sweating, and he has this driven sense of purpose. He is a determined and devoted person, and that's inspiring. This text highlights three devoted types of people. The first type are the Pharisees. But as we look further into them, we see that these Pharisees are devoted oftentimes to themselves. They didn't really get the spirit of fasting. They were there at the wedding enjoying and being part of the festivities, but they did not see who was at the center. Rather, these Pharisees held the assumption that religion was this solemn, joyless affair. You'd go through and you'd do all these ascetic things. You'd deprive yourself because that was holy. No, these traditions aren't in order to make you holy. They are the natural outflow of someone who has encountered something beautiful, someone good. When you encounter something or someone good, you gladly set aside things. You don't set aside things in order to attain them. John's disciples fasted. They were a devoted people. They were devoted to their leader. And they took after their leader's ascetic lifestyle. They, they ate minimal. They dressed minimalist. They were devoted. But Jesus' disciples have a stark contrast. They were a people who fasted from fasting. The people came and asked Jesus, but why aren't your disciples fasting? Because they saw the person was actually with them. All of biblical history, the people of God are looking and they're awaiting this, this Savior, this rescuer. And Jesus' disciples realize, oh, he's here. He's right here. Let's get rid of the fasting. It, we're at the wedding right now. The groomsman is here. It's a bachelor party and we are going to have a great time. We're going to eat. We're going to drink. We're going to... In godliness, we're going to do all these wonderful 
celebratory things. They saw that the coming of the new age was a gift of God's grace. And they drank in deeply by being in relationship with the person. They weren't distracted by the rituals. And in fact, it was a time to set the rituals aside and to look at Christ. Hamdi Hafez was an Egyptian waiter. He was serving one night in Luxor, Egypt. And in the middle of his serving, he fell down dead. He had a heart attack, apparently. His family heard the news, traumatic as we can all imagine. They grabbed him and took him home, and with the Islamic custom, they washed his body. And the doctor came, and one thing she noticed about this gentleman is that his body was warm. And she notified the mother, your son is alive, at which the mother passed out. Once the two regained consciousness, this celebration began. Now, can you imagine the joy of that? He is alive. He's here, my brother, my son. He's alive. Imagine the joy. That's the joy the disciples are encountering. But the Pharisees are right here alongside him, living in the same time and era, and they are not aware of the fact that Christ is alive. He's in your midst. He's living Celebrate him. The bridegroom has come. So whose fast are we going to follow? Let's see the person of Christ. Let's enter into a hungering for God. Each of us are roiling with hunger today. Physical, emotional, great legitimate hungers. Christ has come. He's lived a perfect life. He's taken your sins upon the cross. He said, I want you. He saw you. He saw all of your junk. He saw all of your sins. And he said, put them on me, and I'm going to die, and I'm going to erase your sins. I'm going to set up a place for you. And we're going to live happily ever after. It's a real life fairy tale. Allow your hunger to go towards Christ. All of us are hungry. When we go on Facebook, when we go on Instagram, when we're looking for likes, we're hungering for affirmation. And the Father in Jesus Christ says, you have that hunger, you have those likes, you have that affection, it's here right now. Lean into it. Don't dull your senses with just an endless feasting when you're not even hungry on other things. Come and feast on something that is going to satisfy you, something that has come and pursued you. Someone. When is fasting done? Why is it done? So this chapter takes an ominous turn. and Jesus says, hey, the bridegroom's here. It's time to celebrate. No fasting right now. But then he says this. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away. And they will fast in that day. Christ knew he came to rescue his people, but he knew that his life would be a short one. And he'd be taken, beaten, crucified, and humiliated. He said, that will be the time to fast. 
As each of us who have encountered Christ knows, there is this sweetness when you come into Christ, this sense of like, oh, I'm, I'm forgiven, I'm loved. I'm actually, God sees all my junk and he says, yeah, you're with me. Reminds me of that scene in um, um, Walk the Line. And Johnny Cash, uh, he's, uh, he's going through rehab and he's in the house and he can't, has nothing to offer. And his father-in-law and his wife, I forget it was his girlfriend or wife at the time, but they go out and they chase off the drug dealers with, with shotguns. Get away from this house. There is a love and there's an affection for you and God. And we may look at our lives and see the dissonance, like life is messed up, the world is broken. But Jesus is with us. And we're going to fast until he returns because things are broken still. And we need to once in a while just clear the table of everything else and look into his eyes and let him look into ours. Feast on his affections. Now is the time to fast. Someone says that the birthplace of Christian fasting is actually homesickness for God. It's realizing this world is not what it's supposed to be. Things in my life went utterly in the wrong direction. And that's your heart saying, I'm hungry for something better. Jesus came and I tasted him, but I need him more. Where is my daughter? Where is my son? What happened to my marriage? Why am I like this? Let yourself be homesick. And orient your hunger to God. Why do we fast? I think I've kind of mentioned it earlier that eating is, is this perpetual anesthetic. We go to eating when we're sad. We self-medicate with food, don't we? I know we have a variety of eating is a, a big issue. Some of us need to eat. Some of us are issues we need to eat. There's other ways of fasting. There's other ways of orienting our hunger towards God. But for many of us, food is an anesthetic. Maybe it's the Instagram. Maybe that's the thing you need to fast. It may, it's an anesthetic. This is what, what is the thing you go to when your heart is feeling sad and broken? Fasting is not the only or main way that we glorify God, but it is a way that can serve all others. J.I. Packer describes fasting as this. He says, fasting is a way of clearing your schedule to spend time with a friend. When friends need to be together, they will cancel all other activities in order to make that possible. There's nothing magical about fasting. It's just one way of telling God that your priority at the moment is to be alone with him. This passage concludes with a couple of parables, and Jesus starts talking about clothing and wine, which are natural wedding-related wedding, um, issues of that time. And he says that if you try to patch a new patch of clothing into old, it's going to rip. Anyone who knows about, a little bit about clothing knows that. 
And if you try to put new wine into those old brittle wineskins, it's going to burst. And what is he essentially saying? He's saying, something new is on the scene. God is in your midst. The bridegroom is here. I'm a man, and I came here to pursue you. I gave up a life of marriage. I gave up a life of sin. I'm giving up all these things because I want you with me. Something new is here. I'm here to pursue you. I've come after you. I love you. I'm longing for you. Don't let your heart be utterly destroyed with brokenness. Yes, there is brokenness in this world, but there is a Savior who's come. He fasted the glories of heaven, the comforts, the safety of heaven to come down and to be a human who bleeds, who gets stomach aches, who can be rejected, who can be outcast, who can be murdered. Because he loved you that much. It's a very personal thing. He did it for his people, but he did it for you, the person of Christ. I commend to you fasting. Try it. If you've never done it before, give it a try. You won't be any more spiritual. You won't get holy points. God's not going to give you a high five when you get to heaven. Hey, saw that. <laughs> but it's an opportunity. Press into the presence of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you've given us a variety of tools to seek your face. We thank you that you came in person to reveal your loving heart and attitude towards us. Would you orient our hungers toward you? Would you give us a stronger hunger? Would you help us to do away with the anesthetics that we're going to presently and to look to you and to hunger to you, for you and to be filled? I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.